You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. She's back. I uh, got worried because yes, it's been a she while. she is. And she read your manuscript, which was waiting for her when she came home after her last visit with you in an unmarked envelope with no postage or anything. How curious, she thought, when she found it stuffed in her mail slot. I may have emailed it to a buddy and then had him deliver a copy while you were here. Mmm, <laughs> creepy. I wanted to get it to you as soon as possible after our last meeting, but this place, I would have had to jump through all kinds of hoops, you know? Yeah, and why should you have to do that, right? You okay? Oh, yeah, why wouldn't I be? Hey, how many people do you suppose got bludgeoned with chairs before they started attaching these seats to the tables? I don't know. Maybe you could do a deep dive on that on your tablet. You're very good at research. Very thorough. Well, let's uh, talk about your book. Okay. It's brilliant. Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. It's very well written. The logic of it is complex, but unassailable, and you managed to make it accessible to the less sophisticated mind with both anecdote and simple analogy. Keeps it from getting too cerebral. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. My, my favorite is the chapter about your best friend from high school. Uh, Glenn um, Resnick. Glenn Resnick. Oh, he was, <laughs> he was a real piece of work. Pulled all kinds of stunts, which you describe in such vivid detail, one might think you were there for all of them. 
and love your tally. You know, 14 misdemeanors and two felonies, several of which he actually got caught doing, but not a single day of jail time served. Yeah, the worst he got was community service and anger management that he, he basically flirted his way out of. Because the facilitator was a lonely cat lady. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> meanwhile. And meanwhile, you personally know of at least a dozen guys, all black, of course, who are doing the max in here for way less. Yeah. Like I said, great chapter. Just very illuminating. You know, there's a guy in here. I didn't put him in the book because I didn't find out his deal until a couple of days ago. He pulled over for what was essentially a clerical error on his auto insurance policy. When he insisted to the cop that there must have been some kind of mistake, things escalated to the point where the cop dragged him out of his car, wrestled him down to the ground, and knelt on his neck until backup arrived, which was four more cop cars. So, eight more cops to arrest this one black dude over insurance. And what does he get charged with? Resisting arrest, of course. Exactly. Got the full year. Apparently, there was body cam video of the whole thing. As the guy's being violently yanked out of his car, he says, understandably, right? He says, what the fuck? Like, like, what the fuck? You know? The judge actually cited that during sentencing. Told him that if he had any respect for the law, he wouldn't have been swearing at an officer like that. Wow. Yeah, I'll give you one guess what race the judge was. White, of course. Nope. Asian. I definitely want to add that to the book. Hmm. I'd love to know where you think it might fit best. Somewhere between the beginning and the end. Talk to me about your dedication. My, the, the dedication to the book? In remembrance of the life I stole. Yeah, tell me about that. How did you arrive at that? I, it's a gesture. I thought you'd appreciate the gesture. I, I'm accepting responsibility for taking your brother's life, plain and simple. I'm acknowledging how, uh, I'm acknowledging the enormity of the consequences of my actions. Not a single one of the 82,000 words that come after means anything without that acknowledgement, right? My readers should know up front that I'm sorry for my actions, that I did something I regret. Do you think you would regret it if you didn't get convicted? And I mean, there's a kind of mind out there, the very mind you're trying to appeal to, in fact, that could interpret that as a brag or a fond reminiscing. I'm in remembrance of the life I stole. That's not how I meant it at all. And I'm just pointing out that words matter and that ambiguity is not your Okay, okay, fine. We can use different words. What words do you suggest? We can use different words. (laughs) You are so funny. I'm open to suggestion is all I'm saying, to your suggestion specifically. Mm. Hmm. What does Mark think? I thought... Well, I thought you didn't believe that he was, I, I'm humoring uh, you right now. <laughs> Just let me. Honor. Honor. In honor of the life I stole. Hmm. Much better. Okay. One down. 81,999 to go. Just kidding. (laughs) I told you, it's brilliant. I really don't have much in the way of critique 
to offer. Okay. I, mean, I, so, I do, however, uh, have curiosities, uh, little itches that need scratching before I send you the contract for signing. Oh, wow. Or That's, the signature uh, page of the contract, to be more precise. Uh, oh, well, you said you'd sign it without reading it, so... I did. Well, great. It saves me the postage. Okay. Uh, oh, so just a few questions and we can get this party started. All right. I'm an open book. <laughs> I'm counting on it. You grew up in Indiana? Uh, Evansville, Indiana. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, born to two fundamentalist Christian parents. Uh, one fundamentalist. The other one was just along for the ride. My mom oh. didn't have many options available to her, economically speaking. She barely finished high school. And mm. being a mother was about the only thing she was any good at. Mm. Her own words. Mm-hmm. Frequently repeated by my father. Uh, your father, the electrician? He was a licensed general contractor, but yeah, electrical was his area of expertise. Hmm. <laughs> God and circuits. Uh, I see what you did there, like uh, bread and circuses. Oh, that's right. You minored in classical studies. Yeah. Very good. Very well-rounded. And and you were the youngest of five. Yeah, I... uh... Mm -hmm. Two older brothers, Noah and Gavin, and two older sisters, Ashley and Lindsay. An eight-year spread from Noah to 1977 to you in 1985. You all attended public schools, uh, K through 12. Noah went on to technical school and started his own electrical company, effectively becoming his father's competitor. Ashley and Lindsay are both married with kids working part-time to make ends meet at a furniture store and the Evansville Regional Airport, respectively. You and Gavin were the only ones to go to college, but he was on a football scholarship, which he lost his junior year after failing a drug test. He now manages the footlocker at the Eastland Mall. You, on the other hand, did finish college. A computer science major... With honors, no less. Dean's list every term. Congratulations. And landed that gig writing code at InVenture, fresh out of undergrad, which you worked for five years without promotion before you uh, glitched out and landed yourself here. Yeah. I'm pretty good at research, too. Yeah. You okay? You look a little pale. Are you warm? You're sweating. No, I'm, I'm fine. Let's, uh, let's keep going. Oh, great. <laughs> let's. I, I, uh, <clears throat> I tried to locate your good friend, Glenn, but I couldn't find any record of Glenn Resnick. I did find a Glenn Harding and a Pete Resnick, but... Yeah, um, I, I, uh, I conflated the two. Changed the name to... Uh, uh, protect the guilty. Well, I thought I could make my point without putting them on blast, you know? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I talked to them. You, you, you talked to... Uh, Glenn and Pete? Yeah. I looked them up and I called them. To say what? Oh, that I was thinking of representing your book and needed to confirm a few things. Huh. 
Oh, oh, oh. they were very cooperative. Hmm? Like happy to help. Okay. So, so, what do they say? I mean, uh, what did uh, what do you ask about? Are, are you sure you're all right? Your upper lip is. I am fine. Moist. Can you just tell me what you talked about, please? They said you were a bit of a hothead. Even back then, in simpler times, when life was good. When I brought you up to Pete Resnick, he blurted, Oh, time bomb Trevor! On account of how people never knew when you'd go boom. His first recollection of you was the fistfight you got into with your classmate, Paul Koenig. You punched his jaw so hard it dislocated and choked him out for accidentally spilling a pop on your jacket. It, I, I was young and dumb and a totally different person and it was not. I think it's so cute that they call it pop. Far more apt than soda. Hmm? Uh, Glenn Harding was three years ahead of you. So he didn't remember too much about you, except for what you did to Christina Lynch at his graduation party. What? I never... I, I don't know what he's talking about. Really? Because the way he told it, it sounded very much like the account of what happened to the nameless party girl in your Glenn Resnick chapter. So I think you do know something. A lot of very specific somethings, in fact. But it wasn't me. Oh, well, it couldn't have been Glenn Resnick because, as we've already established, he doesn't exist. It was Harding. Okay, he did it. I was trying to cover for him, but if he's going to sit there and try and pin it on me... Oh, a fun little game of point the finger. <laughs> I thought this might happen, so um, I looked up Christina Lynch. <laughs> yeah, well, good luck trying to talk to her. She uh, uh, committed suicide years ago. I know. Too bad there's nobody around with a metaphysical tie to her, huh? Somebody who could channel her from beyond the grave? Overdosed on sleeping pills and slit a wrist. (laughs) Oh, a belt and suspenders kind of gal. She was that sure she wanted to end it. Whatever happened to her must have been pretty bad. Hmm? Dead at 20? Such a shame. Yeah. Hmm. Her sister, uh, Amber, on the other hand, is alive and well. And has a memory like an elephant, an angry, vindictive elephant. And she was very close with her sister. Loved her deeply. So... Not a fan of you, though. It wasn't me. I mean, it wasn't the me that I am now. It never is. (laughs) So, you admit that when you were 15, you drugged and sexually assaulted Christina Lynch. I... Yes. Well, 
That accounts for the two felonies. Assault and battery and rape. Oh, hey, don't worry. I'm not really interested in knowing all the details of the 14 misdemeanors, but I am curious as to why you, a convicted murderer, felt compelled to fabricate an alter ego of a character to, as you said, pin your lesser crimes on. Yeah, at first, I thought it was maybe because there was no statute of limitations on rape in the state of Indiana. But when I found out that the victim was no longer alive, that didn't add up. Then I thought, maybe it was because you figured, and I'd wager correctly, that anyone could maybe understand a man who snapped one time. Hmm? A man who made a single life-changing mistake and learned from it. They could take whatever hard-won wisdom that man's offering. But a guy who's made a habit of making deplorable decisions, whose past is a mosaic of violence and delinquency, well, <laughs> that's not really someone anyone wants to relate to. Hmm? Nobody wants to read that guy's book, including me. So that's what you came here for, to tell me you're not going to take on my book? What, because I lied about one thing? Well, you lied about everything. You're still lying. You're lying to yourself right now, telling yourself you're a better man. I am. You said those 82,000 words don't mean shit unless you own up to yours, right? How is framing your imaginary friend for a rape you committed, one that resulted in the suicide of the victim, so really you are twice a murderer? You can't blame me for that. You don't know for sure that what I did made her want to do right. that. Right. Maybe she just had a really bad day. Lost a job or broke a freshly manicured nail or something. It, fuck you. You know what you did to her. You fucking know. And so does Amber. And so does Glenn Harding. And so do I. And you know what? I think... I think you revel in it. What? How sick do you think Don't I think am? Don't think I didn't notice that you had that juicy tidbit locked and loaded. Good luck talking to her. Real eager to offer that up. Hmm? Almost proud. Like what she did might actually be evidence that you are consequential after all. Because that's the only way anyone like you can distinguish themselves. Their impact is measurable only by how much devastation they can lay. How many lives they can ruin. You can't offer anything constructive. So you figure you may as well push yourself to be as destructive as possible. That's how sick I think you are, you pathetic, psychopathic piece of shit. You're wrong. <laughs> Prove it. How? Just, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. You can start with that chapter. You, you want me to confess? To oh, God, no. Oh, I already told you, nobody wants to take life advice from Glenn Resnick. But you will need to massage it. Vague it up. Leave out names altogether or use totally fictitious ones and let your reader know that they're fictitious. So you don't want me to confess? Oh, oh no. I, I absolutely do. Just not in the book. The parole board. 
You want me to deliberately torpedo my chance of getting out of here? Uh-uh, uh-uh. I want you to hold yourself accountable in a way that matters. But that's what I'm trying to do with the book. No, 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 no. The book is your attempt to publicize merit you don't have. Hmm? Without actual accountability, it's false advertisement. It's manipulative and hypocritical. You're a smart guy. You have to know that. Well, I know you're trying to have it both ways. Oh, we're deflecting and projecting now. Oh, you don't want me to confess in the book because you likely won't be able to capitalize on that version. But you do want me to go to the parole board and basically beg them to add years to my sentence because what? You think that's holding me accountable? Well, I think that's just you scratching your itch. I think that's just you being sadistic. It's just, I mean, it's just Shane McGillis all over again. Who? Oh, come on. Shane McGillis? The guy who rejected you in college and then years later tried to pitch you his book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mark told me about how you, 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 you got his hopes up and then threw them in a wood chipper. I mean, I'd be surprised if that guy had any self-esteem left. And now you're doing the same thing to me, just drawing it out, seeing how hard you can make me dance before even I don't want to go through with this unholy deal. Parole board confessioner, you must think I'm out of my fucking mind. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. What even makes you think you'd get parole on your first try? Hmm? Do you know how unlikely that is? Not if you're... Oh. Not if you're what? Not if you're what? Hmm? Go ahead, say it. Not if you're white, right? If you're white, your chances of getting parole on the first go are basically double everyone else's. <laughs> Surely you came across that stat in all your research. Or maybe you just know from nine years of observation. Hmm? Either way, you're bullshit. You have written a literal book highlighting all the dangerous, insidious ways white supremacy and privilege manifest. But you're still sitting here trying to benefit from it. Expecting to benefit from it. You're over here collecting other people's misfortunes, like that black guy doing time over an insurance error, even gathering evidence of your own complicity in those misfortunes and putting it all on display. But to what end? That's the most insulting way to be white, if I'm being honest. Faux woke white. Being that guy who's just aware enough to see the problem and thinks that's enough. Like, stop short of taking action in his own life to rectify it. You're right. I know. But wouldn't that make a great addendum to the book? A really strong ending, in fact. An unearned happy ending. It could really drive the point home. Oh, for fuck's sake. No, here's this guy, history of violence, known bigot, took a life for crying out loud. Stop. Released from prison on his first try at parole after doing the minimum, the absolute least a person can do for killing a whole other person. Uh, I, I get it. I mean, that would never happen if I were a black guy. I probably wouldn't even be eligible for parole in the first place. If I were black, I'd be a monster that needed to be locked away forever. I'd be the fucking Kraken. 
Certainly not a man rehabilitating as best he can behind bars, which is what I am as a white guy. And if that's not the height of white privilege, I don't know what is. Oh, you don't. Well, then here, let me tell you. The absolute fucking height would be your laying it all out. Hmm? Everything illegal you've done since you were old enough to commit crimes, you admit to all that in your parole hearing, and if they still let you out... Oh. oh, come on! What's the worst they can do? You already technically paid your dues for the jawbreaker you laid on Paul Koenig. 60 hours of community service and anger management with that cat lady. And, and, and don't Jeez. bother denying that, because you know how easy that was to find. I very much doubt anyone would be rushing to open a decades-old rape case for a deceased victim, so patriarchy prevails there. And nobody gives a shit about your little misdemeanors, hmm? your little dime bag offenses or joy rides or whatever, which leaves us with the manslaughter charge for which you've already done nine years on your best behavior and everything. When's the next time you'd be eligible for parole? Not for another three years. What? See? That's not so bad, right? Oh, spoken like someone who's never done time. What? Because she's never committed a crime. Yes. That's what I call Asian girl magic. Hmm? What? Are you feeling a little insecure? Privilege not potent enough for you to bet three measly years of your life on? <laughs> you are something else. Tell you what, I'll make it easier. I'll write a new letter for them, hmm? but I'm going to let you choose what kind of letter they get, okay? Option one, the one in which I explain that you've written to me, begged me to come visit so that you can tell me in person how terribly you feel for what you did to my brother. You tell me what a revelation this time has been for you. How it's opened your eyes to the unjust realities of our society. Realities you can never unsee. Realities that you felt compelled to record in a book to which you have devoted the last, um... Two years. The last two years of your life? Oh, that's good. Two years is more than just the last ditch effort to look good for the board. That shows commitment, lends credibility to your claims of redemption. Okay, so so you've worked painstakingly for two years on this book. And in this book, you copped your complicity in the system that has made it possible for men like you to reap ill-gotten benefits. You use it to reclaim your checkered past that was rendered invisible through the magic of white privilege. You said you didn't want me to admit that. No, no, that I've changed my mind. This new meta version of yours is way better. More, more high stakes. If you put it all down in your book, own up to all of it in your parole hearing and in a letter to Amber Lynch, oh. you have in effect robbed us both of the people we cherished more than anything else in life. If you apologize to me, the literary agent who can help you get your book out into the world and not to her, the tanning salon employee, you are a selectively remorseful, opportunistic asshole. Do you aim to be a selectively remorseful, opportunistic asshole, Trevor? No. Well, good. So, you cop to everything. To everyone. In all the mediums available to you. And if they still let you out, 
What does that tell us? That I'm right. Precisely. By releasing you, they reinforce the very crux of your book. They, they confirm the thesis that the deck is stacked in favor of white men in a way that even the most willfully ignorant white man can recognize. And if they don't release me? Then you'll be a trailblazer. The first white man to ever experience a legal consequence befitting his crime, which is just as, if not more, valuable. Do you aim to be valuable, Trevor? I do. Good. Do I want to know the second option? Option two. I write a letter telling them how you wrote me, demanding that I come here so you could feed me some crazy bullshit you concocted about how my brother's ghost is helping you to see the light. When really what's happening is you hacked his email and mine. What? You manipulated your standard issue tablet to work around the prison's restrictions. You accessed the internet and hacked into my email account and the email account of the man you killed to get personal information that you could use to make your charade as convincing as possible. No. Oh, you really almost had me. You know, but something was nagging at me after our first visit. Just gnawing away at my mind like a coked-out rodent. And it wasn't until I got home and found the hand-delivered hard copy of your manuscript. A nice little touch, by the way. A vaguely threatening gesture, which I'm sure the board would not approve of. But also a crafty little suggestion that you didn't even know my email address. Hmm? My physical address, sure. But not my email address. Yeah, it, it wasn't until then that it occurred to me to ask, why wouldn't you have my email address? I don't know where you're taking this, but you're wrong. My professional one is right there on my agency's website, which you've definitely visited. And I'm sure that a computer science major who made the dean's list every term could find out what my personal email address was in his sleep. Why is he going out of his way to not email me? I couldn't leave any trace of digital contact with you. That would have been stupid. You know, that's what I thought. But then I sat down to write some emails and on a hunch, I checked my login activity and discovered some weird discrepancies. Like, <laughs> like the time I apparently logged in while I was having a wisdom tooth pulled. Hmm? And an unfamiliar IP address. And that's when I realized... How you done it. All those details. I knew there was something off about them. I knew it, but I couldn't put my finger on what it was. Not at first. All those details that you used to gaslight me into believing your little ghost story are in emails that I wrote to Mark. Huh. Oh. And I've been writing him posthumously all this time. Hmm. It was the only thing I could think to do to keep him alive. I started on the one year anniversary of his death and over the years I have covered everything from obsessive Chinese disorder to his horrible taste in men 
And then there was the one I wrote to him just a couple of days before I came to visit you. Hmm? The one where I tell him, I, I, I tell him how I felt like if, <laughs> if I even thought it was possible to for, forgive you, that if I ever even thought the thought, I would feel like I was betraying him. You read that. You read all of that. And you put it in your arsenal. And you sat there across from me, just waiting. Just waiting for the opportunity to detonate your little truth bombs. To weaponize my love for my brother. Oh, but the, the, the last one, though? Mm-mm, total dud. Shane McGillis, he doesn't exist. Or, well, he does exist, just not in my life. <laughs> He's an ex of my co-worker, Charlotte. She's told that story so many times I feel like I was there, and it sounded like the kind of thing you might put in your arsenal and whip out to get a lick up on me. So, <laughs> a little honey pot just for you. Oh, am I using that right? The hacker lingo? That's what the IT chick I've been using to track your engagement with my account called it. I really am a fan of culturally specific language. You know, <laughs> honey pot, pop. Anyway, she assures me that I've got everything I need to prove that you hacked me. Should you choose option two, I would include all that documentation with my letter to the board. And given that your unauthorized computer use was a means to the end of rigging your parole hearing, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that they'd be open to my strong suggestion of the maximum, which would be 10 years on top of more time for your manslaughter charge because you are clearly far from rehabilitated. Plus whatever punishment they tack on for tampering with the tablet. Hmm? Which is a lot of time. That's the second option. What? Nothing clever to say? No defensive spin, nothing left in your arsenal. Yeah. You knew this entire time, and you still... Are, are you seriously still considering representing my book? Oh, not considering, no. I, I already made up my mind. I'm repping it. Why? Well, well several reasons. First... Should you sign your soul and all your IP rights over to me, I will work as hard as I have to to make it an outrageous success, which actually wouldn't be that hard at all. The press on this would be wild, given our unique relationship, Times Profile, a piece in The New Yorker, maybe 60 Minutes, Oprah would spoon-feed it to her legion of devotees. I mean, you'd become a best-selling author, and I become a shining illustration of what can be achieved through forgiveness. And I will ride that till the wheels fall off. Or at least until I can buy a nice vacation house in Costa Rica. <laughs> Why should you be the only one who can game the system? Hmm? And then, even if and when they let you out of here, you will never be free. 
Every day you wake up, the first thought that will run through your mind will be how the only reason you aren't taking your morning piss in a six by eight cell is because I made it so. <laughs> and at night, as you're falling asleep, the last thing you feel will be the dread that comes with knowing that someone you have wronged irreparably has the power to destroy you, to send you right back to the hell you are presently trying to spin your way out of. To me, that is better than prison. I love that for you. <laughs> and maybe that makes me a sadist, but you know what? I really don't give a fuck. Oh, and lastly, I wasn't blowing smoke up your ass when I told you it's a great book. I think it could actually do the work you said it can do. I mean, <laughs> it definitely challenged my most firmly held beliefs. And, oh, and I, I don't doubt it could do the same for others. The question I have is how someone capable of writing it could also be one of the most duplicitous, manipulative, malicious motherfuckers ever to inhabit this earth. Hmm? How could the man who wrote what feels like genuine, deeply considered and potentially game-changing insight do what you've just done to me? I... I needed to get you to listen. I needed to keep you from walking away. You were going to walk away. You're right. I would have walked away five minutes into our first meeting. I would have walked away, gone home, found your manuscript, and I would have read it out of sheer curiosity. I wouldn't have been able to shake it. And we would have arrived at this point, honestly, integrity intact. <laughs> ah, well. No matter how we got here, I guess. <laughs> We're here now, aren't we? At the moment of truth. Yes. So, what's it going to be? Door number one? Or door number two? Dorset Theater Festival Stage Free Audio Plays and Contemporary American Theater Festival present Redeemed by Chisa Hutchinson, directed by Jade King Carroll, starring Vanessa Kai and Michael Esper, composed by Justin Ellington, sound designed by Twee McCullum. Uptown Works lead recording engineers were Daniela Hart, Bailey Trierweiler, and Noelle Nichols. Their recording engineers were Stan Mataban, Joe Krempitz, and Bryn Scharenberg. Stan Mataban was the dialogue editor. The stage manager was Olivia Louise Tree Plath. 
Stage Free Audio Plays are produced by Dorset Theatre Festival and funded in part by the Ventures Theatre Fund of the Tides Foundation. Dorset Theatre Festival is supported by the Rogers Family Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Harold and Mimi Steinberg Charitable Trust, the Vermont Arts Council, the National Endowment for the Arts, and Dorset Theatre Festival's World Premier Circle donors. Dorset Theatre Festival's mission is to create bold, innovative, and authentic theatre, drawn from the new and classic canon, as well as the development of new plays, new audiences, and new artists for the future of the American theatre. We produce Theatre That Matters. Find out more at dorsettheaterfestival.org. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.